0: Uh, let's open up our Bibles, Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke, um, chapter seven is where we are verses 18 to the first part of verse 28 is what we're going to attempt to cover. We'll see how it goes. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Uh, If you already got one, we're in the third gospel there in the new Testament, Luke's gospel, chapter seven, I'm going to read starting at verse 18 and then, and then, uh, when I'm done here, we'll, we'll pray to kind of dive in. It says this, The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. Then, on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 24, now when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? To stop us there, let's pray. Got to pray right now that you would help us, help us to hear your voice. We hear a lot from ourselves, even if we're not talking. We hear a lot from ourselves inside all of our thoughts, all of our swirling ideas. Whether self-exalting, self-condemning, anxious. Trying to problem solve, judgmental, kind. We hear a lot from ourselves. God, we want to hear from you. Pray that you would silence us so that we could enter the world of Scripture and be addressed by the living God in these moments. That it wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other, but it would penetrate our hearts by your grace, for our good, for your glory. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Okay. Um, This text foregrounds, I wonder if you saw it, a subject that we all deal with. But typically, very few of us like to talk about it. It foregrounds the subject, namely, of doubt. Can a Christian, can a follower of Christ... Doubt. And we call this the Christian faith. We're justified by faith. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. It's the Christian faith. I don't want to talk about doubt. But we all deal with it we're honest. And so as a church, we ought to talk about it. That's what I love about going verse by verse through God's word. All these subjects come up. This morning, we see John in the throes of doubt. He interacts with Jesus uh, concerning these personal doubts that he is having. And there are four observations uh, concerning this doubt that I want to bring out for us this morning. You find it there on your handout. But first, doubts, confusion. It's confusion there in verses 18 to 20. Secondly, it's cause. What causes this doubt that we see? For that, we'll have to kind of go a little bit behind Our text in Luke third, it's cure. And that we see in verses 21 through 23. And then finally it's conclusion in verses 24 to the first part of verse 28. That's the roadmap for those uh, type a among us that like to know where we're headed. Now, you know, let's buckle up and get going first. It's confusion verses 18 to 20. Um, I have to do this quickly, but I, I think we are meant to be startled by the transition of things here in the narrative that Luke is weaving together, especially here in chapter seven. I think we're meant to be startled by the transition of events that Luke is putting together. You might not have noticed it, but it begins what there in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things. What things Think about, if you've been here with us, think about where we've been in chapter 7 so far. (laughs) Amazing things! A centurion's dying servant healed by Jesus with just a word. Verses 1 through 10. And then verses 11 through 15. A widow's dead son, not just dying, but dead son raised back to life with, again, just a word. Young man, arise and the boy sits up. And then in verses sixteen and seventeen, Luke highlights the response of the crowds, looking on at all of this, and we read we read it here. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So people are seeing this stuff and as we would expect, they are amazed and they can't stop talking about him. They're going, who is this Jesus? I think he's come from God. Man, who else can do this sort of thing? But then it's as if Luke kind of pans the camera over now to John the Baptist. The man who, to this point, has actually been the boldest promoter of Jesus in the gospel. And we read this. Verse 18, 19. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And we are meant to be staggered by that. The whole countryside is declaring, man, there is something amazing going on. This guy has come from God. He is a prophet or something even greater. We don't know. Who resurrects the dead? John's disciples come to him. Man, you've got to hear about all the stuff that's been going on. John says in return, yeah, but I have a question for him. See the one or should we just look for someone else? Not impressed. What is that? What is that? Luke says it so nonchalantly, we just keep going on, but what is happening in john's heart and john's soul there is turmoil underneath those words and i want us to get there understand it. there's doubt this this man who has experienced so much from jesus is now in the throes of doubt I and mean, we got to remember we got to remember that John's experience of Jesus goes way back beyond these moments in chapter 7. Okay, Luke actually is the one who says, listen, it starts from the womb. This relationship between John and Jesus starts from the womb. You remember that? You remember when uh, Mary travels to where Elizabeth is at? Both of them are with child. Uh, Mary has Jesus. Elizabeth has, has John. And, and when they greet uh, one another... Uh, It says that John leaps in Elizabeth's womb for joy. Because he knows he's in the presence of the coming one. Even from the womb, he knew that. Or you have these amazing testimonies from John about Jesus throughout all the scripture, but particularly in, in John's gospel. You see him say things like, man, When I was baptizing, I saw the Spirit descend on him, and it remained on him. And I remembered what I was told. I said, man, this one is the Son of God. Or we remember when uh, John had been making these disciples, and as he starts to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, he has no problem saying, listen, i got to decrease. Let him increase. You, my disciples, go be disciples of him. That's the point. We rejoice in the bridegroom's voice, but it's the who has the bride, you go. I'm going to follow him with you. And then we come to verses 18 to 20 in our text. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? I wonder if you've ever experienced something like this where um, you've had those highs with the Lord or those mountaintop experiences or whatever you want to call them. Maybe you went to Hume Lake summer camp or you went on a mission trip or you, you know, whatever. You just got saved and you felt so near to him and every moment was to be cherished. You know, you feel like he was speaking right to you. You could just see his fingerprints all over your life. And then somehow, Somewhere along the way, something shifts in your heart and you start to doubt. Is, is, is God really for me? Is Jesus really the one, the answer? Is the Bible, can, can it really be trusted? Can I really be assured of my salvation? We start asking things, asking questions that on our brightest of days, we couldn't even imagine asking. But these are the sorts of questions that haunt us in the shadows. Now, I said secondly, I wanted to observe regarding this doubt, its cause. It's cause. What is underneath this? So far, all I've done is identify the tension. The tension between what John knows of Jesus and what he here in in verses 18 to 20 is now saying. The doubts he's experiencing about Jesus. I've identified the tension, but what is causing that? To answer my original question, what is that? And the whole countryside is declaring his praise. The one who was the boldest is now doubting. What causes that change, that shift in our hearts? In John's heart. Now, certainly in general, um, we must say that all doubt has at its root an element of pride. Uh, the fact that we can even doubt our Creator. The fact that we, the creature, can even doubt our creator shows that already something has is, is, is gone off in our hearts, in the world. That somehow we would feel right about making the God of the cosmos bow to our logic. He's got to fit into our reasoning or we will not. We will not. We'll just go looking for another. We will not follow you unless you make sense to me. That already is something's gone off there. In the end, I suppose God could come against all of our doubts in the same way he came against Job's. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job 38, 2-4. So you're struggling with what I'm doing, with what I'm saying. Who are you? And where were you? So there is pride underneath this, to be sure. But do not mistake me. God is happy, even though he doesn't need to. He's not required to engage us in this. He is happy to come near. We'll see this to the doubtful, to the doubting and the struggling and the skeptics and the the concerned and the worried. It's awesome. While pride is always at the deepest level beneath our doubts, there are other things that feed into this as well. With John's case here in particular, what we see is that I think doubt can result from mistaken interpretations of scripture that lead to mistaken expectations of reality. Do you hear me on that? Mistaken interpretations. Good. I mean, he's in the book. Mistaken interpretations that lead to mistaken expectations. And when those things don't align, what we think we see in his word and what is happening to us in our lives, oftentimes, rather than coming to God in humility and saying, man, I must be off, correct me, shape me, change me. We say in our pride, are you the one or should I go looking for another? Let me flesh this out for you a little bit further. It's quite clear that John, uh, like so many in Israel, interpreted Old Testament prophecy in such a way that he came to expect certain things from the Messiah. The coming one. This Messiah would be a king. He would come in judgment to crush Israel's enemies, which at this point in history is Rome. And by crushing Israel's enemies, he would then restore God's people, Israel, to the land and, and, and set up his kingdom. On the earth, here and now, forever. He's reading Isaiah, he's reading Jeremiah, He's read, that's what he's getting, that's what they're getting. When is that going to come? Certain interpretations leading to certain expectations. And when those don't align or work out, doubts in pride, doubts. All of this stuff that John and Israel are expecting, Jesus ultimately will do. In fact, even beyond what they could have imagined or conceived. He will crush enemies. Enemies they didn't even know about. Set up a kingdom more eternal than they could even conceive. Involve them in a land. Even great... I mean, go to Jerusalem? Compared to the new Jerusalem Jesus is playing? He's doing more than they could even imagine. But it's... It's going to be on a different timeline and it's going to be done in a different way. It's not going to mesh with his black and white interpretations of some of these prophecies. It's a little more nuanced than that. So John in his early days, off of this interpretation of scripture, with these expectations of reality, John in his early days is just fearless, man. He's just fearless. He's got this sense of the imminent judgment of Christ that's coming. And he's just Fearless, listen to some of this when we look back at his ministry there in in Luke chapter three, we kind of get a snapshot of things, and this is unmistakable. Check some of this these verses out as people were coming to him for baptism. Do you remember what he does? He rebukes them. He sees some kind of nominal people or, or leaders in Israel that are just kind of religious externally and he, and he says, "You brood of vipers, Luke three verse seven, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come and then in verse nine. Even now, even now, you hear the imminence? I'm expecting judgment here. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Listen to his preaching. Even now, that axe is here. Man, my Jesus is going to get going. Enemies are going to be stopped. He's going to do some great stuff among us. Verses 16 to 17 of Luke 3. He continues. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then check this out again, verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand. This guy's got an ax in his hand laid to the root of the tree. He's got a winnowing fork in his hand and he's going to clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The picture in my mind, you guys, I mean, I just imagine John, John's not bold because he thinks he's something special. He's fearless. He's unflinchingly bold because he knows, he he believes Jesus is right behind him, like a lion. Except this lion isn't chasing John. This lion is defending John. And he knows, man, I could speak like this because the lion has my back. The lion of Judah is here. I'm not afraid of anyone. So he calls out Pharisees. He calls out Sadducees. He calls out nominal Jews. And he even calls out Herod the tetrarch or governor appointed by Rome over Galilee and Perea, calls him out for his adultery with Herodias. It's fornication. He's fearless. What's he going to do to me? There's a lion at my back. But now in our text, there's a little detail that hints at a major problem. I wonder if you noticed. We're told that all of John's interactions with Jesus take place through mediation at this point. The disciples see these things, that his disciples see these things, and they come back to John and tell him, And John says, well, i got some questions for Jesus of my own. Now you, disciples, go back to him and ask him for me. Well, John, go ask him yourself, man. Oh, that's right. He can't. We're told in Luke 3.20, John is locked up in prison. It seems Herod didn't appreciate John's public rebuke. And so he locks him up in one of his restored castles. It's this castle that Josephus tells us uh, is called Macarius. It's in Perea and John is locked in the dungeon beneath it. And by the time Luke 7 rolls around, he's been there, it would seem, for quite a while. And let me tell you something, that, that is enough to dissolve a man's unflinching boldness into trembling fear and doubt. That will do a number on your heart when you expect Christ will have your back. I can't wait. And then you're just sitting there in prison, left to die, where he will die. It's as if John thought that in Jesus he had a, and he thought correctly, just again, timeline, thought that in Jesus he had a lion behind him. And he turns back in these moments in the dungeon and he realizes, not a lion after all, it's just a little lamb. Soft, pathetic little lamb. All you're doing, Jesus, is mercy, mercy, mercy. I don't want to hear about another miracle, healing the sick and the blind, and do. I don't want to hear about it. Eating with tax collectors and sinners. Where's the judgment? Where's the axe? Where's the winnowing fork? Where's the fire? Where's the release from captivity that you preach? I'm captive. I've been captive. And while I sit here in chains, Herod is lounging on his couch up above my head, laughing. And pretty soon he will have my head on a platter. I thought you had my back. Beneath the doubt we see in verses 18 to 20, pride, mistaken interpretation, mistaken expectation. John could not conceive of a lion who would also be the lamb, at least not in this way. And so his guttural response is not, hey, fix my interpretation and my expectation. But instead, I guess I better look for someone else. If you had that happen where you're longing for something good to happen to you and you want God to move in your life and you actually see it and him move for someone else and it, rather than encourage you, it actually makes you even more discouraged. It's like, God, you're doing that for everybody else and here I sit. I think that's where John was. I wonder if you've ever experienced this sort of thing, though. Things where in your life, they're not not going according to plan. They're not going according to your interpretation of Scripture. Promises that you claim in Jesus' name. So this is what all things work together for my good beings? My boss is going to call me into his office and say, Sorry. You're not performing. Or I'm going to miscarry another baby. A womb becomes a grave. That's for my good. Or I'm going to catch my husband cheating with a, with, on me with a young girl. And don't tell me that that God is working together all things for my good. I don't think so. I didn't sign up for this. You ever been there? If You've been there. Then you've been in the dungeon with John. This doesn't line up. Maybe this is all the fairy tale. I was expecting something different. Third observation, and now we can move towards uh, verses 21 to 23. We see its cure. The cure for doubt is exposed in our text, I think. I want to watch how Jesus responds to this question from John at this point. In this, I think we will be directed to doubt's cure. First, Jesus responds there in verse 21 not with words but with works. It's a bit redundant when you think about it, but still, this is amazing. And that hour, verse 21, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. You just have to love this because it's almost as if Jesus, at least the way that Luke captures it, just feels like this almost like Jesus is just going, not the coming one. Are you serious? Was that guy born blind? How about you see? Say, oh, you—you you got a demon that's possessed you since you were young. Go home, Satan. Was that a plague? I don't. Know, plagues sound pretty serious, but just a word. Healed. The way that, that, that Luke records it, it sounds just epic. Like it's almost nothing for him. Just power flowing, redemptive, redeeming, renewing power flowing from this one. Not the coming one. John. But I said this is kind of redundant. Why? Why? John's already heard these things. He's already seen these things. He already knows that Jesus can do these sorts of things. So what is Jesus doing? I think this is what makes what Jesus does next the most important thing to make note of. Because what he's going to do now is help John connect the dots from his works to the word of God that John is cherishing in his interpretations of the Messiah and what he's expecting from reality rooted in the word. And now Jesus says, okay, let's go back to the word. Let me show you how my works fit, connect with God's word. The uh, book of Isaiah is written, it seems, um, to a people, to God's people, Uh, As they're kind of spiraling towards exile because of their sin. But the center of gravity in the book of Isaiah really leans towards actually the time after exile. When God's people will be restored to the land. Renewed in fellowship with him. And really not just God's people, but the whole Creation. This is the sort of stuff Isaiah talks about. You're headed towards exile. But listen, there is a time coming of redemption and restoration and renewal of all things. And in the book of Isaiah, there is one figure held out preeminently as the one through whom God will accomplish all of this. Namely, the, the servant, the Messiah, the Christ. And in verse 22 of Luke 7. Jesus is essentially gathering up a whole host of these messianic prophecies from Isaiah, throwing them out on the table for John to see and saying, John, we have a match here, bro. I am the coming one. Don't you go looking anywhere else. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Behind these words, here's what you have: Isaiah 26:19. Isaiah. 29, 18, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, Isaiah 42, 18, Isaiah 61, 1, behind one verse, 5, 6, 7 verses from Isaiah. He's saying, John, if you know your Bible, you will not miss this. It might not have been what you expected, but I am he. I am he. Go and tell John. Put my works in the context of God's word. Let's see if we can't help John through this. Now, I said that um, this whole exchange points us towards the cure for our doubt. What? Where am I getting that? What? What is it? <laughs> well, to put it simply, it's, you're not going to like it because it's it's so. It's so children's ministry, vacation, Bible school answer, but it's true. Keep coming to Jesus. Keep coming to Jesus. As I flesh that out, I think you'll see it actually is quite profound. What do you do when you are doubting Jesus and struggling with what he's up to in your life? But perhaps a bit ironically, you come to him anyways. This gets to that humility that we're often lacking where we want you. We come to him and we say, you teach us. You correct us. You connect the dots for me. Show me where I miss something. You locate me in God's story, in God's world. You don't got to bow to my reason. Help me bow to your logic, your reason. Show me. Show me. You see, John does right here. You got to love this, though. He is doubting. He doesn't run from Jesus with his doubts. He runs to Jesus. Or does he runs from? He doesn't run from Jesus with his doubts. He runs to him. And he talks honestly. He talks openly. With Jesus about it. He knows that Jesus is a safe place. To struggle and wrestle. I'm in a dungeon. Where was that in your plan? God's so gracious to us. Jesus is so gracious to us. He wants us to speak to him in that way. So you keep coming. You keep coming. You don't let your doubts go the other way. Um, There's a biblical scholar I was looking at on this subject, and he was likening doubt. I thought this was a helpful image. He was likening doubt to the twilight hours of the day. Now, twilight, my favorite time of day, there's actually two times, right? Because twilight happens when the sun is, is, is down over the horizon. You get kind of this soft glow of light. But what you don't know about twilight is which direction it's going to go. Is this soft glow of light going to be snuffed out? Is it descending into darkness? And is it evening time and it's going to be a deeper, darker night? Or is this, is this uh, twilight the the coming on of the day? The dawn of something new, of an even brighter light. And this guy was saying, man, doubt is like that. It's like twilight. And what determines whether you go into deeper darkness or you go into brighter light is what you do with the twilight hour, what you do with your doubt and your time in John's dungeon. If you run away, yeah, I guess I'm going. You go off into the night. But if you come to Christ like John does here, what you actually start to see is you're gonna gonna see more. You're gonna get revelation. You're gonna learn. There's gonna be a dawning coming on here. I believe that's probably what took place with John. A resilience so that even in his prison cell, he said, May God's with me. I missed the fact about suffering, the suffering servant. I missed it. Thanks for leading me back to Isaiah. I see it now. And I suffer with you unto glory. Cut my head off, Herod. Not a hair of my head will perish in the end. Let me put a few key words on the process. I think God takes all of his disciples through. Stick with me on this. Three key words. Construction. Deconstruction, reconstruction, and in that order. Construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. We begin with construction, and by this I mean we all get our initial ideas about God, about Jesus, about ourselves. We have this, we have this sort of preliminary construct in our mind that we think, we think these things are accurate. But then Jesus comes to us in love and he starts to expose certain things that are off. He starts to deconstruct, so to speak. He he shows us where uh, our, our interpretations, our understandings, our constructs don't match with reality. And here is the dungeon moment. Here is the place that we're prone to struggle and doubt. When he's deconstructing our preconceived notions and things. But he's not abandoning you. He's not whatever like you think. He's working on you. He's getting ready to reconstruct. If we go to Christ with our doubts. If we come to him and say, man, I must have missed something. Put this back together for me. Well, then what will happen is, is He will. He will start to reconstruct us towards reality. We will get a clearer sense of who he is and what he's come to do, of who we really are and what we really need. He takes us deeper into the scriptures and helps us put more of the pieces together. Construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. And this is the process that we're all on, brothers and sisters. You don't mature out of this until you're in glory. Excuse me. He's always working on us in this way. Let me give you a few examples from his disciples in the scriptures. As you see this everywhere, we might think of Peter here and his misplaced confidence in himself. Remember him? They'll all fall away, Jesus. I will never fall away from you. Uh, Well, there's a false construction that we'll have to deal with. He will have to be humbled, broken down. He will go away weeping. He will hide from Jesus after the resurrection, probably it seems. I, I don't know. Or at least after the crucifixion, just shame. Jesus will pursue him. Jesus will reconstruct him, but now he'll reconstruct him, not on self-reliance, not on himself, but on a sure foundation. Wow, okay. Okay. Listen, Peter, you will fall, but I will pray for you. And when you turn, you will strengthen your brothers. I'm the hinge here. You need me. Let's deconstruct, reconstruct. You might think of those two on the road to Emmaus. They had no category for, like, like all in Israel really had no category for a crucified Messiah. If Jesus died on the cross, well, they say, we thought he, or I'm sorry, we had hoped he was the one. Luke 24, 21. He's dead. He can't be the one. There's no category in their minds for a a, a, a lion who is a lamb. For a crucified Messiah. He's dead. It's over. Well, that needs to be deconstructed, doesn't it? So what does Jesus do? Leave him in it? No, he shows up. And he blows their minds. You guys want to do a Bible study with me? Who are you? Just let me take you through some scriptures and show you how all of this pointed to the Messiah suffering, dying, rising again for his people and their hearts come alive with faith. They say it was burning within them. Reconstruction towards reality. Now I'm not afraid of death. No, I'm not looking for anywhere else. He's the one. You might think of Paul, a man who says of his own admission, according to the law, I was blameless, you guys, blameless. Well, that construct needs to be deconstructed. if he's ever going to get saved and be of any use to the kingdom. Massive use to the kingdom, Paul was. Of no use unless Jesus takes him into the dungeon and deals with some of this. You're not great, Paul. Deconstructs. The most loving way, deconstructs so that he can reconstruct Paul, on not on his own righteousness, but on Christ's. So that Paul would say, Philippians 3, seven, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's just rubbish. It's just a dung heap. All that righteousness. I want Christ. See that? Reconstruction. He's doing this with all of us. I wonder what it is for you. I wonder where he's at. I wonder where the dungeon is. And you're doubting. I'm going to look for someone else. Don't look for someone else. The key in all of this is, is that we take that twilight hour. We don't go into darkness. We go back to the one who has the light who is his shots. Locate me in reality. Put me back together. Help me see rightly. And he will. He will. Fourth observation. I said that we will look at doubt's conclusion in verses 24 to the first part of verse 28. This I, I'm just going to cover very, in a very cursory manner. So don't worry if you are. I, I, I read earlier through the first part of verse 28. I'm aware that verse 28 continues. We will deal with that later. For now, I wanted to stay. I wanted to connect this part of the scripture to where we've been seeing John and Jesus dealing with this doubt Because I I thought, what a surprising conclusion we see here in these verses. You would think that as John's disciples turn and go away, and Jesus now turns towards the crowd to address them about all that they just saw, or witnessed this question that John wants to ask him and all these things, Jesus' response, you would think that there would be some sort of little tinge of Bitterness or resentment on Jesus' part, or at least a rebuke? Like, Jesus is, is, is yes, he's God, but we can forget that he's also man. That has to hurt. Your cousin, and the one who was your boldest promoter, wants his own disciples to come and say, are you the one in front of all these people? That has to hurt. That has to cut you deep. And at least we would expect him to turn and go, guys, don't you be like John. You could see what I do. Don't you go that way. It's pathetic. Who doubts someone who can raise people from the dead? But He doesn't do any of that. This is what was so surprising to me about the conclusion to all of this. He turns, he turns to this crowd and he essentially says, man, isn't John great? I mean, let me go a little further. Among women, there is none greater than John. Isn't he awesome? He reaffirms John's identity as the forerunner to the Messiah prophesied by Malachi. He's the one who's going before me. Isn't John awesome? Isn't he great? I just saw that. I said, wow. Don't you just expect that was what Jesus, what Jesus would do in in and your doubts just kind of rebuke you and turn away from you. You see, Jesus knows what he's getting into with us, you guys. He he's not surprised. He knows, like the scriptures say, he knows what's in man. He's not surprised when we struggle to trust him. Even in the face of overwhelming evidence. For goodness sake, have you read this in Matthew? 28, verse 17. This is incredible. Jesus has risen from the dead, appeared to these disciples, called them to the mount where he will ascend into heaven. And it's almost as if as they're watching him ascend into heaven, he's giving his last commanding orders to them. We read in Matthew 28, verse 17, that some of the disciples looking on what? Doubted. We think what fools and yet we do it every day. And Jesus knows what he's getting into with us. That's why he's come you guys. That's why he goes to the cross. He, he's not offended or hurt or embittered by being left alone from John because he knows you will all leave me tonight. Every one of you is going to scatter and I will be left utterly alone to face the wrath of God for your sin. So that when I've resurrected, when I come back in the spirit, I can begin to put you back together. Rewire this fallen heart with faith, locating faith where it ought to be located in God, not in yourself, your own reason, your own logic. God. He's going to be patient with us. He's going to invite our doubts and our struggles. Does Jesus look at people and say, oh, you have little faith? Yes, he does. But I wonder if you've noticed, here's a perfect paradigm for you. This is free. I'm going to throw this in before I close. (laughs) It's a perfect paradigm for you to think about. You remember Peter walking on the water? Remember how he's like, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out. Jesus says, come on out. Say, Whoa, this is amazing. This is amazing. Oh, my gosh, doubt. Oh, my gosh, doubt. Right. And, 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 and Jesus, what do we read? He immediately reaches out his hand. There's no cross arm. Even when he says, why did you doubt? And there's a subtle call towards faith and a subtle rebuke of our faithlessness. He reaches out his hand. This is what I want you to see he's doing with us. This is reconstruction. Why did you doubt? He's with us. He moves towards us in it. He's going to help us grow in faith. His hand is going to be there. He invites us to come. This is why why Jesus calls the church uh, to be that sort of community where doubt is safe. It's not something we don't talk about. It's something we're not afraid to talk about and pray about. We need to. We need to keep coming to Jesus or it goes dark. It goes the other way. So when Jude is talking to the church about people who will struggle with doubt, what does he call them to do? Condemn them. Get those heathens out of your midst. Judge them. Rebuke them. No. Jude, verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Mercy. Because that's what Jesus does. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your patience with us. You purchased patience for us on the cross. The axe should have already swung through this tree. The winnowing fork should have already tossed me out with the chaff. But because you were the tree cut down, Calvary, because you were tossed into the fire at Calvary. You can be so patient as you put sinners like us back together. We thank you, Lord. We honor you. We praise you. We worship you. It's in your name we pray.